0: It's March sixteenth, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Rosawa. First up today, we're going to hear about a
1: couple of upcoming events. Gabe Yanagihara is here to tell us about an upcoming Hawaii Virtual Reality Club meeting. Then Ariao joins us from the Society of Women Engineers to tell us about an event called
0: Wow! That's Engineering! Wow, that sounds good. Finally, we'll learn about the dengue and Zika viruses. We'll talk to Elliot Parks and Vivek. Now, Rukar, about being, what's being done here in Hawaii to fight these viruses.
1: Absolutely. We always welcome your questions as part of that conversation. You can contact us by calling in or sending us a tweet
0: after the break. And of course, first up, we want to welcome Gabe Yanagihara from Hawaii VR to tell us about this next meetup. Welcome to the show, Gabe. Oh, it's great to be here. So the Hawaii VR group has been kind of around for a little while, right, and uh
2: you, uh, uh, yeah, so it's pushing about three years on and off right now. We're getting, we have a couple of really core members. Mm-hmm. Really, like they, their companies have gotten really successful. So they're spreading wings and going off. So we're having kind of like a get-together and see what everyone's been doing. So
0: Kai Kai, right, is one of the Kai, founding. W- yeah, Kai, Kai. yeah, Kai. Yeah, and he's one of the founding members, right? Yes. Is yes. He, is, uh, how's his company doing?
2: Oh, very well. Uh, I'm super excited, and he's going to be showcasing a lot of the secret stuff he's been working on. Oh, really? At the event, so I'm looking forward to it.
0: Are you folks getting your hands on some new hardware? I mean, there's so much stuff kind of coming out now.
2: Yeah, the VR scene is really exploding. So actually, that's kind of what the one of the events is, is we're going to be able to check out all the different events, right? Like I'm going to be trying in the Oculus. He's bringing us his HTC Vive. So mm-hmm. we're going to have a whole bunch of different tech that people can try out and mm-hmm. play with. Now, the newest um, hardware,
1: I think, for this meeting coming up is the HTC Vive. Oh yes. A lot of people are familiar with Oculus purchased by Facebook, only now getting to the point where it's ready for the consumer facing product. There's debate about the hardware you need to run it. You have to have a fairly high-end computer to plug in the Oculus, for example. But I would say they also have the most robust developer community. Tell us about HTC's entry into the space, the HTC Vive.
2: So the one that we've been getting really excited about with the HTC Vive, um, well, for me, like I haven't demoed it myself. So this is my opportunity to try it out as as someone who's worked more with Oculus. But really, it it allows room-scale VR. So outside of the sitting uh, experience that you would get with the Oculus, where you sit down and you can experience the whole world around you, but you're stationary. With the HTC Vive and the Room one, so we're going to have the the controllers for it, and we're going to have the room set up. So you actually get to walk around into digital space within a safe area, right? So that lets you interact, move, get under something. And there's a whole bunch of really cool demos up online that we're going to be showcasing and trying out.
0: So what is it that uh, there's a whole um, range of different sort of VR headsets from, you know, like the Google Cardboard and all the way up to the Oculus. I mean, I can understand playing around with Google Cardboard because the entry, uh, the price point entry is not that high. But when you start to play with Oculus, I mean, does, you know, I mean, that's a lot of. Cash you got to put down to buy. Oh
2: yeah, I remember that night. That night we're like, all right, I'm gonna pre-order, pre-order it, and oh, that is a lot of money. It's all right. Um, it was seven hundred dollars, I think. Yeah, I think it was it was uh, five ninety nine plus plus change for shipping to Hawaii, which was you know. On scale with like a, a good monitor for computers. So, so so
0: is the, um, you know, is Cardboard really just a, I mean, what is it? Just a demo kind of thing? Or where, does it have a place in the sort of the the range of VR uh, options that you have?
2: Well, actually, that's really interesting because with the Google Cardboard, so uh, since I teach over at Iolani School, mm-hmm. we've been using the Google Cardboard on and off um, for just, you know, testing out, exploring, just seeing what it can do. But recently, Google has launched their Google Expeditions program. Which is kind of like uh, if you remember back in the day they had that red like view master, you click it and you see around, but it's that, but with virtual reality, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. so now, using the super cheap super entry level, you can do it with like entry level Android phones for like fifty bucks, right? you get that, you get the cardboard with it, and now the teacher can take all the entire class on like this virtual tour of anywhere, right, places you can't take the kids um so we're we're testing that out, I think. Uh, we are applied for the beta program for that as well, hoping to get them to come out here and check out some really cool stuff.
1: I would definitely say there's a space in that, that ecosystem mm-hmm. and the Google Cardboard being at the entry level. We have two in our house, 15 bucks each, unofficial cardboard. My son puts his old iPhone 5 in there and can download an app. And even my wife was wowed at the ability to stand under underneath the uh the Eiffel Tower and look up and turn around and see things in Paris and of course my son plays this uh, roller coaster game which makes me dizzy the minute I put that on my face. Oh yes. But I mean that's very entry level up to the hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of dollars you'll be looking for at this. You said you're more familiar with Oculus. What will you be talking about Oculus at this meetup?
2: So with the event at the Oculus um, when I first, when the Oculus Kickstarter first came up and I started getting a lot of traction on Reddit and online I was able to post online about some ideas I had about using it in my classroom over at Iolani. Um, and to my surprise, a bunch of the users on there were like, hey, that sounds awesome. We'll just send you one, right? So uh, one of the people, he, he gave me his uh, developer kit one. And we use that for like the Minecraft workshops, for modding Minecraft, for uh, playing with some Unity tools and stuff. Um, but that's, we're, we're extending that further now, right? So we're letting kids really just put this tech in the kids of the students and just let them go crazy mm-hmm, with it. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, uh, are you folks also delving into the augmented reality sort of space?
2: Oh that would be that would be a dream come true. I really want to get a HoloLens, but they're kind of they're like if I thought the Oculus was expensive, that one's even higher up on the list. Uh-huh. Um and it's going to be mostly for trying to get trying to find out, like, I haven't developed for it. I haven't tried it. I haven't tested anything with it. So I'm really trying to see if I can just get my hands on it and try it out myself. So that's
0: something that probably will be a, a technology that comes after sort of the VR technology.
2: Yeah, like, it's it's, told, it's two very different beasts mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they support each other. But what was really, in, like, um, they had they had them set up at MineCon in London, which is a Minecraft convention in London uh, last year. Um, but the line for it was crazy. And the tech, like, everyone who came out of that that golden room that they had everyone locked off on they had some amazing like their eyes were just like i'm like am i like it was like the matrix right like they could you know have digital things coming up out of the floor interacting with it in real space i really really want to get my hands on one of those
1: now I'm also curious about the ecosystem outside of simply the hardware. Certainly, when you're talking about having a meetup and hanging out, everyone's going to want to get their hands on the Oculus, the HTC Vive, or even play with Google Cardboard. But uh, I think that it's a wide range, ranging conversation that you're looking at, including kind of the business opportunities that exist. You've talked about some of the a- educational applications, but Kai, the founder of the one of the founders of the club, is doing something called V Archive, right? A sort of like the YouTube of virtual reality content. So that's one possible business opportunity? What are some of the other things that you're seeing people coming up with and thinking about this technology?
2: So a lot of the things I'm seeing, so of course, the, the gaming scene is huge, right? There's a whole lot of like indie developers, the ones who are smaller groups, that are more nimble, who can take the risks to develop for an unproven platform. Um, so there's a whole lot of demo games and tech games that people are you know, just trying out to see if it will work. Um, so the, a lot of the people are taking their risk on their careers that way the other side that I see of it is um, there's a lot of use that I can see in like uh, medical fields um, what, there's one tech demo with the HTC, HTC Vive right now where you kind of take apart the robot from Portal so you kind of uh, grab its face and you pull it, the robot apart and you see all the different parts of it Right? they're imagining the same thing with the you know, human anatomy or um, physiological you, know, you do a CAT scan, right?
1: Right, I can see, for example, for the HTC 5 because it allows interaction with a space, things like vocational training, perhaps, maybe helping you work on a car virtually, and you can manipulate the elements of it. But you can get into an engine in your in your goggles in a way you couldn't actually get into the engine in real
2: life. Yes, and that 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 idea is is so crazy. Being able to like pull apart and scan, like it's having Superman's X Men X ray vision, right? Well, you
0: know, X-Men I was going to say, to say that uh, uh, you know I would imagine myself getting a little sort of maybe motion sickness, a little seasick, uh, experiencing the VR experience. But in addition to that, and being able to pull somebody's face apart would probably add to that (laughs) (laughs) notch. So, I mean, but going back to the sort of seasickness and, and motion sickness, I mean, is there something about the technology that will start to minimize that kind of feeling?
2: Yeah, so one of the biggest challenges VR has had in the past was that that response time. So like when you start moving your head to mm-hmm, when the screen mm-hmm. refreshes has always been too long, right? Okay. It's been maybe like you know more more than a couple milliseconds. Um, I think uh, Oculus's goal was to have it, I believe, under twenty. Don't quote me under that. Um, but it was trying to get it. If you get it under a certain threshold, most people. Get that sense. I think they call it is like presence, right? Mm-hmm. Where you really feel like you're in this other space where the responsiveness and the, the quick feedback of it really fit, uh, makes you feel okay. like that. Cool,
0: well, cool. So give us the uh, details on when, where this event is taking place.
2: So we're going to be showcasing all the virtual reality demos uh, Thursday, March 17th in the Sullivan Center for Innovation and Leadership over at Iolani School. Um, we're going to have the Oculus Rift, HTC Vive, as well as Google Cardboard. And That's
1: tomorrow. Sessions. That is tomorrow yes. at 5 p.m. So you find more information, you can go to meetup.com.
0: Slash VR. Well, thanks, Gabe, for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And, of course, next up is Ari from the Society of Women Engineers over at the University of Hawaii, and she's here to tell us about something called WOW! That's Engineering. Welcome to the show, Ari.
3: Hi, nice to be nice to be here. Absolutely, <laughs> well, so,
0: we're glad to have you. So the uh, tell us a little bit about the Society of Women Engineers.
3: So the Society of Women Engineers is a club at UH. We have been around for about 14 years, I'd say, <laughs> and... We are dedicated to encouraging women and everyone to pursue their careers in engineering. I guess
0: mm-hmm. yeah. has uh, has it um, have you seen it kind of grow? Is it a plateaued kind of you know membership? I mean, what, what's the current state over the fourteen years? I mean, I, I know you haven't been in that position yeah. for fourteen <laughs> years, but have you a sense as to whether the attendance is, is growing?
3: Yeah, it's definitely hard to expand the group considering there are other clubs at UH that are dedicated to specific majors. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people want to go to that club rather than be involved into our club Mm -hmm. dedicated to women specifically. Mm-hmm. Now Ari,
1: you're a sophomore? Yes. So um, how did you become the president of the the local chapter, the UH chapter of the Society of Women Engineers? Was it a, <laughs> a contested convention? Was it a was, was there hanging chads? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> hanging Let's chads, see.
3: well last year I was a member and I was very curious about them, so I was pretty involved. And then they nominated me, surprisingly, to be the president. And eventually, I just ended up winning somehow. Not sure how that happened. Well, was actually. there
0: anyone running against? You? <laughs> yeah, I mean that could be a, you know, kind of be one of the reasons. Maybe. Yeah, there were a few other people. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, congratulations for Thank that. Thank you. So, tell us a little bit about what would a member be able to take part in, being a part of this society.
3: In our club, the main thing we try to do is outreach to middle school students because we like to try mm. to encourage them to pursue careers in STEM. We also do volunteer work and other College of Engineering-related things.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So would you perhaps get involved with any of the like robotics competitions that, that uh, yeah. come through?
3: Yes, we definitely try to get our members to volunteer for as many science-related uh, and technology-related things that are out there. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do come out, and we like to volunteer for the first robotics.
0: Oh, first. So uh, so. F- you would, would you characterize uh, the society being kind of more of an outreach outreach organization, trying to get women who are part of the organization out to to maybe influence some of the younger, um, like you said, middle school and high school kids?
3: Yeah. Um, I'd say about 50-50. A lot of our stuff is based on outreach, but the other half is basing ourselves on professional development and encouraging mm-hmm. others to expand in their their studies and to gain scholarships and a lot of leadership work.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, something certainly drew you to the Society of Women Engineers your first year, your freshman year, and here you are the president now. But (laughs) um, for someone who's coming in now as a freshman, I mean, what would you pitch to that new student, that new engineering student, uh, a a female engineering student for the benefits? I mean, what drew you and what draws people now?
3: Yeah, I would definitely say that a lot of it is to do with networking with other students that are going to be going through the same classes as you in college and, you can get involved and make a lot of friends throughout the whole year and your time at college. And it's a good opportunity to make connections, have professional development, and gain a lot of volunteer experience.
1: So how does the group interact? Is, uh, do you have regular meetups? Is there a Facebook group where you all talk? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the platform?
3: We have a Facebook, which is actually called Sweet Hawaii. We have an Instagram That is also Sui Hawaii. (laughs) Sui being S W E. -E, Yes, sorry. And And I I noticed
0: there's a Sui Hawaii Twitter account which has still a silhouette (laughs) as the uh, profile picture. We're working on (laughs) it.
3: (laughs) But yeah, we also have meetings every once a month, and we have officer meetings once every week to Mm -hmm. plan those general meetings.
0: And then, so you're a civil engineer. You have you have members that are mechanical, electrical. Chemical. I mean, what, what, yes. what don't you allow into the club? <laughs>
3: <laughs> those, well, we those allow, computer
0: science guys <laughs> or, or girls. <laughs>
3: they are allowed to join. We have our club is open to everyone, regardless of their major. But in the College of Engineering, we mainly have civil engineering civils, mechanicals, and electricals. Mm-hmm. Gotcha,
2: mm-hmm.
1: gotcha. Now, Good. so you talked about these monthly events, certainly for the club to interact, for professional development, for networking, but you are also putting together this broader event. You mentioned the outreach to younger girls, and it's called WOW! That's Engineering. It's coming up next month. I know it's a little early, but what is the format of that event?
3: That event is going to, it's held at UH in our one of our lecture halls. So we're bringing in, Uh, middle school students to come in and talk to us we're gonna have them participate in three different activities one for civil one for mechanical and one for electrical so that gives them a taste of what they could be doing in their future and how they could pursue that yeah later Mm -hmm, on in college
1: mm -hmm. these are hands-on activities like for example uh, what would they what would they be doing
3: so for our civil activity we're gonna have them make a structure that is earthquake proof And Mm -hmm. then for our mechanical, we're having them build a mechanical claw that they can pick up stuff with and do creative stuff with it. Mm. And for our electrical, we're having them making squishy circuits, which is a circuit made out of Play-Doh of insulating and conductive dough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: And who comes up with these uh, cool ideas?
3: (laughs) We like to browse the Internet and find a bunch of stuff.
0: Sounds like uh, sounds like sounds like some of the experiments that they might do for a science Olympiad. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. So the kids will come in; they'll get to participate and and play around with with uh, some of these uh, experiments. And then, uh, is it the uh, the goal to just kind of get them exposed to something kind of new and interesting?
3: Yeah, our main goal is to expose them first off, and especially to encourage them to uh, continue the interest in that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm, we also have mm-hmm. parents come, and the parents get to talk to students, and we have a student ex- student panel that they can ask questions about to see what it's actually like going through college as an engineering major, and we also have the some of the professors come and talk to them to give them advice. On that too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so there is a program. So certainly for a younger uh, student, the parents are probably going to be there. So there's an, there is a track for them, basically, yes. while their while their students are doing this fun stuff with play doh and, and, <laughs> and earthquakes, mm-hmm. they can ask they can they can ask other students and, and
0: yes. learn more about what their uh, their their youngsters might do. So are you um, are you planning to do this kind of on a monthly basis, or does it does it sort of vary from month to month?
3: I wish we could do it on a monthly basis, but we actually have this as an annual event. Oh, this is the annual. Okay. Okay.
0: So this is kind of a big deal then coming up (laughs) in April.
3: We still have yet to plan a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, I want to ask you this other question. Um, Being that you're civil engineering in Hawaii, going through the program, what do you consider your job prospects as you graduate from the university?
3: Job prospects. I'd say I like... I think I would like to go into construction. Mm-hmm. So Probably
0: you're you're like. looking at um, trying to stay in Hawaii, looking oh, for yes, some definitely. opportunity here.
3: Okay. Yes, it's so beautiful here.
0: So you are? Are you are you feeling confident? She sounds optimistic. to me. Very <laughs> optimistic. I like the optimism. <laughs> I like the optimism. I mean, well, we're we're exploring the idea of what what opportunities might there exist for young engineers, you know, graduating from UH. And what is what from your perspective? What do you see in the horizon?
3: Um, not sure what I would do. Precipice- um. SWE has a lot of conferences that we send people go to go to, mm. and at those conferences, there are career fairs that mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of our SWE members actually get internships or jobs up there. Okay, so
0: the, so I think being a part of the club, you, you also have the opportunity to interact with some of the companies that are perhaps hiring and, and maybe participating as interns uh, prior to that full-time job.
3: Yes, we also have people come in during our general meetings to talk to us about what it's like to work in... As an engineer, and they sometimes like to recruit people to be interns or actually have a full time job as a. Oh,
0: good, engineer. good. So, well, yeah,
1: Ari, it was great to be introduced to the Society of Women Engineers, <laughs> the UH chapter, and I hope we're going to have you back, perhaps as this event gets closer or perhaps as you have other events planned. Uh, this is coming up on the 23rd of April, sometime in the future, but if somebody wanted to find more information about your organization, where should they go?
3: You can find more information at uhm.swe.org. That's Fantastic. easy enough. That is easy enough. Yep. We'll
1: put the link on our show notes at BiteMarkscafe.com.
0: Well, thanks, org. Ari, for joining us. Thank you. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Elliot Parks and Vivek Narukar, and talking about about the fight against dengue and Zika.
1: What work and research is happening here in Hawaii? How close are scientists worldwide to finding a vaccine? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689.
0: And, of course, we're live in the studio. You can tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Hawaii's Democrats will caucus on March 26th. And for Hawaii's long-lived and aging population, Social Security is an issue. So what's the difference between Senator Sanders and Secretary Clinton? We'll find out tomorrow morning at 8 on The
4: Conversation.
5: global trade and the American economy. Who wins and who loses? It's one thing to talk about software programmers. It's quite another thing to talk about workers with a high school education or less who started off in a factory job. I'm Kai Rizdal. The latest installment of the Marketplace Edison
4: Research Poll Talks Trade coming up next time. This evening at six following Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back
0: to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Elliot Parks and Vivek Narukar. Elliot is the president and CEO of Hawaii Biotech a biotechnology company focused on the research and development of vaccinations for established and emerging infectious diseases.
1: Vivek, meanwhile, is a professor and chair of the Department of Tropical Medicine, Medical Microbiology, and Pharmacology. His major areas of research is in infectious diseases, specifically the study of pathogenesis of
0: orphan diseases and orphan microbial agents. And, of course, uh, what is it about these two viruses that we want to talk about, dengue and Zika that makes, uh, of course, uh, mosquitoes their carrier. We'd, of course, love your questions and comments. And that number is 941 3689 on Oahu or 877 941 3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, Bert. It's great to be here. So let's start with the idea that, uh, you know, dengue has been on the news, it's been talked about. There's, uh, I think, uh, we all, Governor Ige, I think, uh, had a, uh, announced a state of emergency for the eradication of, of mosquitoes. And so most of the effort has been around getting rid of the, you know, the uh, creature, the mosquito that's actually passing it on to people. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. And, and I also want to, of course, talk about the work that you folks are doing. How successful are we at getting rid of the mosquito?
6: Oh well, Vivek, you want to take that on? Sure. I th- I think the, I don't think you can ever get rid of mosquitoes. Uh, you can control them, mm-hmm. and that's what the state is doing right now. They are trying to controlling the mosquito breeding breeding places, so that they can, that the, there are no more larvae, or pupae, and we don't get adult mosquitoes. And the state is doing a pretty good job on 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 uh, the Big Island of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had one another case coming up within the last uh, couple of days or so. After a lack period of almost a week when we had no cases at all, mm-hmm. so so I think uh, how to control these mosquitoes is going to be a um, big challenge, and not only a, not only in Hawaii, but worldwide basically.
0: Now, what was it that actually started uh, the dengue spread in Hawaii? Because. Uh, there's been a long period of time when we never heard about dengue, and then all of a sudden, I think within the last, what was it, maybe nine months or so, or maybe maybe longer, 12 months, uh, it started to crop up. And what was the, that first incident? What was sort of patient zero? Where did that come from?
5: Well, Bert, we've had the mosquito that transmits the dengue mm-hmm. for years here, especially on the Big Island. We've got a very voracious eater called Aedes, Albi- Aedes aegypti. And uh, so, anytime someone brings in dengue, and they're bitten by a mosquito, we can potentially spread it to a second, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth person.
0: So, so the mosquito is here, but the the patient that has the dengue virus still needs to spread that to that mosquito. Correct? Right.
6: Yeah. So, so you know, uh, this particular. Dengue outbreak, which we had um, some starting sometime late last year, mm-hmm. is not a first outbreak. We had a major outbreak in here in Hawaii uh, during uh, the during World War II, right, right. And then we had two other outbreaks in 2001 and 2011. Mm-hmm. 2001 outbreak was in Hana, and we 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 had Aedes albopictus in there, um, unlike the Aedes aegypti which you see uh, up on the up in up in the Big Island. So uh, so dengue is is around in here the question which you asked earlier to see whether uh, what is that first case it's Mm -hmm. not a first case per se it's the question is who is getting infected outside of Hawaii for example, one of those, one of, uh, the Pacific Island, Island nations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you go in there. Nowadays, with jet travel, you can get back home in 24 hours, less than 24 hours. You get infected in one of those islands. Uh, you are incubating. Mm-hmm. It takes a couple of days to incubate. Uh, you come home, and you start getting a fever and a chill. And at the same time, you have mosquitoes around your house. So mm-hmm. you start getting bitten by that. And then you start the chain. Having the people in the household or in the neighborhood start getting getting infected So now, that's the way it usually starts
1: now Elliot, you described this particular species of uh, mosquito as a voracious eater, so when when you talk about these past outbreaks historically in in uh, previous years and this year um You said that the mosquito has always been here, so it's more a target of opportunity of someone with the virus coming to Hawaii. But what is it about this mosquito that makes it really effective? I would would imagine, then, that there are other species of mosquitoes that aren't as good as uh, transmitting uh, these kind of viruses.
5: Well, and Vivek addressed that a bit. We have Aedes aegypti, which is a voracious eater on the Big Island, and we have Aedes albopictus on, on other islands as well as the Big Island. Aedes albopictus is what we call a sylvan mosquito. Lives in the woods, um, eats once a day, uh, or eats once at a time. On the other hand, Aedes aegypti, while they can, while they lay their eggs out in the wild, you know they'll live in your house. They live in your in your closet, and they don't. If there are four of us in the room here, they'll feed on all four of us at once. So you can see that voracious eater can spread that virus more often through all of us rather than eating just. Eating, having a feeding event only once a day.
0: So, so this species, Egypta, is it on Oahu as well?
5: I don't believe it is. No, it is not.
0: Uh, and so, is the
6: is the only presence on the Big Island? Yes, for now we know that it's only on the Big Island. But again, you know, uh, some of the some of the studies done here in uh, here on Oahu, we are not find any. We we, we couldn't find any um, eight Egypta. There was one case near the airport published a couple of years ago. Uh, of one single, care, single single mosquito. But uh, uh, most, 99.99, it is Aedes albopictus.
0: So, I mean, it's thankful that it's not on Oahu, but what is it that's preventing it from being here? I mean, you know, given the fact that you have jet travel and you have a lot of people kind of coming back and forth or, or you know, there's cargo and all that, what is it that's preventing that mosquito from coming, let's say, to Oahu?
6: No, I, th- I, th- I think it is just a matter of time. Oh really? In just a matter of but, time but but to but,
0: see. but this mosquito, um, Egypta has been around on a big island for a long time, right? It's been you've 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 chronicled uh cases of dengue from World War Two, right? So if you think about forty years I mean, you know, back in the in the forties and now, I mean, that's a good 70-some-odd years, and it hasn't come to Oahu. So something has prevented that from happening. I'm curious. I mean, something's working, right? What's, what is What is it that's they working? They
1: haven't perfected air travel, I would have <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, y-
5: you need both a mosquito and an infected human.
0: Right. So, But I would guess that the infected human is likely to be here because there's so many more tourists here.
5: And then they have to be bitten by the mosquito. Right, and right, and right. the thing, the difference between between being here on, on Oahu, for instance, mm-hmm. and being in somewhere in Central or South America, we have, we have air conditioning, we have screen doors, people spend a lot of time inside. Um, I mean, uh, uh, to the point, one of the biggest targets or, or the biggest risk groups on the Big Island for, for dengue are the homeless. Oh, uh-huh. uh, because they're out there all the time uh-huh, uh-huh. exposed to, to places where mosquitoes can, can live and breed. Now, Vivek,
1: you talked a little bit about this. Um, so uh, how random are we talking about, or do through research, you know that, for example, the paths of transmission between an infected person via mosquito to another person, is it primarily family, social group? Is it primarily neighborhood, region? Um, or is it pretty much anything goes?
6: No, I, th- I think it starts with the with your closed unit. So basically, if there's an the index case in a home, then obviously there are mosquitoes around in there. So there are family members are there who might be getting getting infected or bitten by the mosquitoes, which are infected. But at the same time, you then spread around to the neighbors and the neighbors' neighbors. And so the so it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a chain reaction which goes around. So, so we say that if you have an index case, then within a certain area, 100 meters or so, mm. you will find some new cases coming up. And then we start going from there. Now you know uh this particular voracious
0: mosquito uh it's on the big island but does dengue also get transmitted by the other mosquitoes uh, I mean they may they may not be as voracious but are the uh, is their um let's say physiology also capable of carrying that virus
6: Yeah so dengue can be carried by Aedes albopictus and one of the reasons why we say Aedes albopictus is not that good as a transmitter. It's a poor transmitter, what we call mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as as a, as um, opposed to the Aedes aegypti. And scientifically, we say that there is something called the gut barrier, the barrier in the in, in the system mm-hmm. where the virus transmission is is pretty low when you have Aedes albopictus as compared to Aedes aegypti. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Now, Elliot, we are talking primarily right now about dengue, but certainly there have been headlines nationally as well about Zika. Um, Before we get to the specific differences between those diseases and certainly your work in uh, trying to develop a defense to it, um, for our understanding, um, are we effectively worried about the same things for Zika as as we are for dengue in the sense that it can be transmitted this way via mosquitoes?
5: Yes. Both dengue Virus and Zika virus are in the same virus family, same family as as West Nile virus, as Japanese encephalitis virus, as yellow fever virus. Mm-hmm. So while those viruses are in the same family, and can be transmitted in a similar way, they don't all the, the diseases they cause are are somewhat different. Mm-hmm. But in, in the case again of Zika, and of dengue, uh, it's the same mosquitoes that have the same efficiency in transmitting the disease. So so when and if and most people think when we get a, an individual that comes to Hawaii that has zika we have we have a risk issue. Mm-hmm. We want to keep that person or those people away from mosquitoes certainly.
1: Now for dengue certainly it can be life threatening for people with weak immune systems for example, but it's uh, I would imagine the symptoms are just generally very uncomfortable, but uh, I I'm getting the sense certainly that zika's uh Strongest and most frightening impact is on uh, developing fetuses, for example. But can you help us uh, work out the the sort of symptoms or the problems that are presented by the two viruses?
5: Well, uh, you're right. Dengue is primarily a, a a fever. It's like it's sort of like flu, but it's a, it's a very significant experience. People who have had dengue do not enjoy it, and sometimes they many will say it's a, it's as sick as they've ever been. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they typically recover. Uh, especially the first time. We can talk about, there are four different serotypes of dengue, and if you get one, and you may be predisposed if you get a different one of having a more severe case. Um, Zika is only a single virus. There, there aren't four different serotypes here. But Zika is neuroinvasive, like Japanese encephalitis virus, like West Nile virus, all those are neuroinvasive viruses. Dengue is not neuroinvasive. So, so when so you say neuroinvasive, what do you mean? Well in if you if the, if you have a pregnant woman and she has she's carrying a fetus, it can get through the placenta into the into the fetus and then into the brain of the uh-huh. fetus uh-huh. And that's why we believe we suspect that that at that 2627 week of gestation, when the when the outer part of the brain should be expanding it, it isn't it doesn't and that's why you get this microcephaly, the small brain, symptom. Mm-hmm. Now you but said
1: you said we believe or we suspect. So a lot of people are sort of functioning under the under the assumption that this microcephaly uh, condition is coming from zika but is but there's still a question mark attached to that, Vivek.
6: R- right, there are there are many question marks and uh, people are trying to put different theories uh um, specifically in in Brazil uh where it's going on right now. Uh, from chemicals onwards to uh, some some detergents onwards to just just name it. Uh, but I think uh, within the last couple of weeks to months, if you can say that, um, we are close to seeing that there is a very strong association, and I'm still using the word association, between uh, Zika virus and occurrence of microcephaly uh, in, in, in babies, babies who are born to Zika virus-infected women.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, the when we talk about Zika and Zika being a virus, microcephaly is that more a condition or is that also referred to as a virus? No, no.
6: So it's a condition. Microcephaly is, is a condition. Okay. So, so Zika. Uh, how long has Zika been around? Well, the the first uh, first reports of Zika uh, was in the Zika forest in Uganda mm-hmm. in 1947, and it was found in the rhesus rhesus monkeys. Uh, it was a yellow fever surveillance going on in that area when they found this uh, you know you know mosquitoes and the monkeys there but then the human cases only came out 5 years after that in the in the same area mm-hmm. so it has been around for a long time however um it's been it's been in the limelight if you want to say that uh, since only 2007 or so mm-hmm. when there were many many cases around in here and specifically right our, our neighbors uh, in the pacific uh, in on the on the island of yap Mm-hmm. Uh, where there where there was an outbreak uh, of of Zika virus,
0: and and the uh, the symptoms when you get Zika is it you said it's kind of similar to
6: to uh, dengue. Yeah, I, I, the, the the symptoms are very 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 similar. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's very difficult to sometimes differentiate between, between whether you have a Zika or you have got a, you got a dengue. Of course, if you do some clinical investigations, uh, get some blood work done, then you can probably zero in on it a little bit. But I think finally, you need to have a laboratory confirmation mm-hmm. of having a Zika infection. So that is something which is lacking right now. Even in Brazil, um, they don't have that much. Um, it's not that everywhere it's available right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a hope that uh, these kind of diagnostic assays will be available widely. So, Elliot,
1: how is, what is that process here? We, when we identify a case of dengue, wh- how does that happen? In terms of doing the testing, is the laboratory here? Do we ship it somewhere else?
5: Oh, we have the ability in Hawaii to to test. We have to know those individuals. They have to present themselves on the Big Island, for instance. They have to present themselves as sick in an emergency room. But we don't have have community surveillance where we go out and force people and
0: draw blood from people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So so there is a test that they can uh, administer at the hospital that could identify whether it's uh, a dengue. Well, there
5: there are a variety of levels of testing, and I think that that Vivek's very involved in
6: that. So, so I think I think um, from last what I heard, there there are these tests available uh, at, the, at the Department of Health in here. So the samples can be tested here on on the island of Oahu. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've still not heard anything which can be tested up in the Big Island per oh, se. Oh, I see. I see. But they do want that there too. But we do have capacity here at the Department of Health uh, mm-hmm. to do these kinds of testing. So, yeah. so, so the um, the occurrence of dengue is
0: seemingly slowing down. So, it seems like uh, the amount of people that are infected and getting it transmitted, you know, to the mosquito is is slowing down. Uh, do you see a point? Hopefully in the near future where that, you know, infection, the infected population is, is basically down to zero, then, you know, the, the disease will pretty much go dormant after that. Well,
5: we would hope so on the Big Island. I mean, that's what's happened in the past, as Vivek has mentioned, and
1: we expect that to happen here.
5: Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean the mosquitoes have gone away. Right, 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 right. right. So,
1: mean, yeah, I definitely want to get to sort of the other ways that you can um, combat a, an infection like this. But um, to kind of close out the mosquito conversation, because you say the mosquitoes are always here, I mean, what are how effective are these uh, broad ap- approaches to mosquito control in terms of getting us to the point where the where the infections drop to zero and essentially um, the the community is, is is clean i mean is this really the best way that we have as a perhaps as a government for example the department of health is to find ways to uh, eliminate mosquitoes
6: right there are there are certain standard protocols uh, which have been followed by the vector control and that has been effective till now, and I believe um, they will continue to do to the follow up the same same protocols, but at the same time, there are newer methods and technology out there, including having sterile mosquitoes. Now, in in uh, in uh, in Florida, uh, in the in the Key West, uh, they do they are trying to do that yet, but not yet approved by the by the FDA and, and other other bodies. But in Brazil, they have already done that. They have they have released uh, thousands and thousands of uh, sterile mosquitoes, uh, mm-hmm. and hoping that. Um, that might bring down the population of mosquitoes. That's kind of a biocontrol. Correct. By by putting sterile mosquitoes out there, a
1: good number of your transmitting mosquitoes are going to have a good time, but they're not going to create more mosquitoes.
0: Correct. (laughs) Now, you know, I I do want to sort of explore with you, uh, Elliot, about the actual uh, vaccine that takes care of uh, or maybe helps a person recover from dengue because... Uh, Hawaii Biotech was, I think, instrumental in, in coming up with a vaccine. So let's talk about that. We want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Elliot Park and uh, Vivek Narukar about the fight against dengue and Zika. And, of course, we do welcome your questions
1: as part of the conversation. Nine four one three six eight nine is the number to call from Oahu. Or if you're on the neighbor islands, including the Big Island, you can call eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine.
0: This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, we look at energy efficiency laws. The
7: California Energy Commission projected at the time that homes built after the standards were enacted would use 80% less energy.
4: What actually happened?
7: That's next time on Freakonomics Radio.
4: Thursday evening at 7, following With Good Reason. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Christian De Quincey, author of Blind Spots.
0: Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how common clichés distort our understanding of science, philosophy, and spirituality.
4: Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool.
1: Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Elliot Parks and Vivek Nerutkar about the fight against dengue and Zika.
0: And, of course, you can give us a call. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the Neighbor Islands. And right before the break, we're kind of interested in in finding out from uh, from Elliot because Elliot, you know, Hawaii Biotech has been very much involved with the creation of vaccines, and and you folks actually had a, have a vaccine for dengue that um, was was one of the, I guess, uh, vaccines sold to one of the bigger companies that now distributes that for uh, the you know the uh, the care and recovery from from dengue. Maybe tell us a little bit about what goes into the creation of a vaccine for this virus. Okay.
5: Bert, um, there are different ways to make vaccines. One way is to take is to grow up a large amount of virus and then kill that virus and use it as a vaccine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another way is to, over years, bioengineer a virus so it no longer causes disease, so you don't have to kill it, and use that as a vaccine. We use the third approach, which is we, through molecular biology, we create the proteins or recreate the proteins that are on the virus itself, and And administer those proteins, so this is a this is a safe, not we call it non-replicating virus because it, a vaccine because it does not have any virus in it. Mm-hmm. that's That's good for our people because they're not exposed to to viruses. It's also good in manufacturing, and it's certainly good at the at the back end. Uh, and so we have a great deal of experience with this family of flaviviruses. we've d- We developed a dengue vaccine, as you mentioned. We sold that vaccine to Merck. Merck is still doing clinical trials. It's not yet licensed for sale. Hmm. Uh, there's only one dengue vaccine that is licensed for sale in certain parts of the world, um, but typically in endemic areas, not in, in areas like the U.S. or Europe at the present time. We also developed a West Nile vaccine, took it in the clinic, and now we're developing a, a Zika vaccine. So two things to to remember here. The first is our vaccine is is non-replicating, it's only protein, it's very safe. I think for a Zika vaccine, we're ultimately going to want to and need to give the vaccine to women of childbearing age. And that that means we'll either, either purposely or inadvertently be exposing pregnant women. Mm-hmm. And so this, we try to make all our vaccines safe, of course, from a public health standpoint, but this is a, a very, very safe approach to making vaccines. Mm-hmm. The second thing I'd mention is, because we've already worked with the US FDA on two other very similar vaccines and have and have had conversations just as recently as earlier this week with the FDA. They understand what we do, they're familiar with the company, they're familiar with our approach and so we are are fortunate to have a strong relationship with With the regulatory agency.
1: So, Elliot, I mean, I'm not a scientist, so I'll I'll understand if this question is even just ridiculous or or (laughs) unclear. So, when you, so I like when you say non-replicating, so it's like we're not creating something that could itself be released or, you know, break out and such. And when you say it's not like a weakened form of the virus, it's just the proteins. That makes sense to me, too. How does that help someone become immune to the virus? Is it because those proteins plug the same holes in my system that would otherwise be vulnerable to the dengue virus?
5: That's it. That's a wonderful question, Ryan. The, the, the whole concept behind a vaccine is to expose a healthy individual to to the agent that causes the disease without causing the disease. Uh, typically when you have a when you have an infectious disease, when you recover, you're then immune. Your, your body can fight off another exposure to that same disease. So we artificially educate the immune system, educate the, the naive individual so that if they ever do get exposed to the actual infectious agent, the immune response comes comes to the fore immediately and prevents that virus from growing and prevents the disease
1: but you do that without the infectious infectious agent itself so these we, proteins are close enough
5: we we do it with the proteins that are identical to the proteins on the outside of the virus which is good for two reasons it's the proteins that we use help the virus attach to the to the host cell to to the to the individual and it's also the same target that the antib- that the immune response targets. Mm-hmm. So so we we're, we we're, we're, we
0: educate a lot of soldiers basically. So when when the protein attaches to the host cell, uh, does the the host need to have a continual supply of that protein, uh, and does the body in some way replicate that protein? Because you know when you think about like things like antibodies, I mean antibodies will go in and attack something but you're actually providing this this sort of inert protein that will take the place of the virus we, but we, where's the supply coming we, from we provide the protein as you say that stimulates
5: the antibody so what so we we expose the protein we expose the individual to the protein for a short period of time antibodies are formed those antibodies are long-lived hopefully mm-hmm. as long as the individual is alive hmm.
0: But the so, antibodies aren't the ones that are attaching to the, the host. The antibodies block the attachment. Oh, I the see. The antibodies
5: that. block that attachment.
1: And that, and as you said, that's a, that's a long-term uh, defense that the body has developed. That you're not saying that they need to get this vaccine every three years or anything like
5: that. Exactly. The idea is to give them one or two doses of the vaccine in a short period of time, and then they're immune for the for the rest of their lives. Now, the thing I we haven't mentioned here is that viruses. Are parasites. Viruses cannot live on their own. Viruses have to infect a cell, and then hijack this, the the cell's machinery. Right. And and they use this, the cell's machinery to create new viruses. Mm-hmm. So viruses, unlike bacteria, bacteria can live on their own outside, mm-hmm. and and viruses cannot do that. Viruses are parasites. They can only live inside some other some other cells. So if you if you block that first event, the entry. Then you just clear the viruses out of the
0: body. Got it. Great. So we're talking to uh, Elliot Parks from Hawaii Biotech and, of course, uh, Vivek Narukar from the uh, University of Hawaii uh, um, I forget what the department, but <laughs> the University of Hawaii. And what I do want to encourage that if you have a question about dengue or Zika, please give us a call. Number is 941 on Oahu or 877-941-3689. From the neighbor islands, we want to welcome Erica from Hawaii Kai to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show.
7: Hi. Um, thank you. Uh, I have a question about Zika. So earlier you had mentioned that there's a, what seems to be a, an association between Uh, zika and microcephaly
6: but my question is at what point does um a pregnant woman need to be bitten in order to
3: um have that as an outcome
6: like is there a point where okay you're 35 weeks so if you're bitten now you're not going to have you know your
7: baby is developed so you're not going to have microcephaly or can it be any time in the gestation period
6: that's That's, an an great, that's a great question. I was this, curious this about that. This is an excellent question, and we have been we have been grappling with that for a long time now. I'm, when I mean to say long time, I want to mean say only two two months. Okay, <laughs> <It's>, uh, because <laughs> because we are just getting this microcephaly uh, mm-hmm. on board in mm-hmm. here, and and our thinking and our our whole concepts have been changing over the past even six weeks. Uh, previously, mm. we did think that okay, you need to get it, get the infection very early on in the pregnancy, maybe 17 weeks, you know, first trimester, to have a microcephaly. But they published published papers very recently within the last two uh, two weeks, say that no, you can have uh, infection even in the later part of pregnancy, second trimester, or even early part of the third trimester. Mm. So that whole concept of having early pregnancy is uh, has, has been changed, and that changed only within the last six weeks. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine then the answer is certainly um,
1: we have not determined if there is a safe point after which uh, you wouldn't have this condition.
6: Right.
0: So so um, getting getting thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks thanks uh, Erica for that call. So the um, you know getting back to the, the discussion about uh, dengue and, and the virus, you know the the vaccine was sold to Merck what back in what two thousand ten. And so that's been you know a good six years, and st- it's still in clinical trials. It's a long. It seems like a long time for uh, it to actually be still going through trials, or is it? Is is that something that I just you know am not <laughs> not uh, clear on? Well, Bert, the question of of how long it takes
5: in the clinic before we know that this a predictive vaccine is safe and effective is 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 Different for every disease. Mm -hmm. And dengue is a very difficult disease. There are four, as I said, there are four different serotypes of dengue. So this is a very difficult challenge. The other problem is how do you prove efficacy? And in the case of of dengue, you can't challenge. We don't have any treatment for dengue, so you can't ethically immunize and then challenge. So you have to have what are called field studies field trials. And you just have to wait until people are naturally you you give them the vaccine and then you wait to see if they're naturally infected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's that's a particularly difficult vac- uh,
0: vaccine to to get licensed. Right. Great. You know uh, we're talking to Elliot Parks from uh, Hawaii Biotech and of course Vivek Narukar from uh, the uh, UH, UH Department of Tropical Medicine. And we're talking about dengue and Zika. And of course, if you have a question or comment, uh, call us. Uh, and we have our calls lined up actually. So. Nine four one three six eight nine on Oahu or 877-941-3689. From the neighbor islands, we want to welcome Christian from Kalihi, the Bite Marsh Cafe. Welcome to the show.
7: Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. So my question is um, based on a friend of mine who I'm working with the project. Uh, she's a public health nurse in Southern California, and she's
5: a little bit of an honorary person, but uh, she's been complaining about the fact that her clinic's been overrun by people seeking testing for the Zika virus. Mm. Uh, and so our basic complaint is that uh, it's too overpublicized, and people are coming in, and it, it basically just—it's a chance of microcephaly. Uh, it's been around for a while, so basically people are being overly
7: concerned about it, and it's causing a strain on the healthcare system there. Uh, so I was wondering what their views as uh, more researchers or uh, people who are involved with the virus themselves, how they feel about uh, the Zika's current uh,
0: popularity.
6: Okay. Excellent Thanks. Question. Christian. Yeah. So, so I think I think this is a, this is an important question. And and any kind of outbreaks or any kind of a disease coming out, you are going to get a hyper hyper public. You know, you are going, people are going to be worried. What's happening to them? What's happening to their loved ones? And mm-hmm. they are going to be uh, requiring testing for Zika, especially especially if you are in a in a in a childbearing age. Uh, so I am not surprised that uh, women are coming in there and asking that get me tested for a Zika. Now how realistic it is, that's that's another question. So mm-hmm. that's where your physician comes into the picture. And you need to go to your physician to ask this test to be done. You just can't go uh, to the local Long's drug and start doing this testing right. in there. Mm-hmm. So so you need to talk to your physician. So so that's what the the procedure and the process is going to be. All right. right.
5: And i I just add to that that if, if you haven't been in an area where Zika is endemic, you really have very little concern, and and your physician will explain that to you. You're likely
1: not going to be that first case in in
5: your
7: neighborhood.
0: Well, very good. Okay, so uh, we want to also welcome Brett from Kaimuki to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show.
7: Thank you so much. What a timely topic. I'd like to rapid-fire some questions and then um, listen off-air. First off, my nephew was volunteering during his pre-med in Mexico and contracted one of the four serotypes of dengue. He was informed that he can no longer—he's no longer a candidate for the uh, vaccine because I guess it will coagulate. He'll hyper hyperreact to the vaccine, and if that is the case, I just heard on the show prior to yours that they're now finding ways to suppress Ig. Um, uh, they trick part of your body to suppress or or dis, dispose of one of the um, antibodies, mm-hmm. and uh, just so. Th- And then uh, I understand the military have been uh, giving vaccine for all four serotypes uh, before they go into areas that are uh, possible to contamination. And then the last question is, um, if the dengue or the um, Zika, if the virus makes it into the host cell, are there markers that present on the surface of the host cell so that the um, it can be identified and destroyed before the the virus can start replicating very much.
1: All right, uh, a number of questions there, Elliot. I think you okay, can well, give well, it take, it. Taking, taking the last first,
5: uh, no, I don't think attacking the host cell is the best way to uh, to prevent uh, Zika infection. Uh, I don't know of any particular. Uh, proteins on the, that are presented on the surface of the host cell. So I don't think – that there are better, more efficient ways to do it. Uh, back to your first question, I think the, the story is just the opposite. There's only one vaccine that's been approved, licensed anywhere in the world uh, for dengue, and that vaccine works better if you've been exposed at least once before. Mm-hmm. So the current vaccine that's out there that's being licensed country by country – would certainly be safe for your um, for your relative who's been exposed.
0: Vivek,
6: uh, I just want to go to the last question which was asked. So, so the so the main main answer to that question is something called as biomarkers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we are looking for those biomarkers. So, if a cell is exposed to a virus, they do the cells start producing specific markers, and if we can find out what those biomarkers are, then we can start looking at different aspects of research. Uh, uh, l- not in on, not on the virus control, but can be also used for vaccine research later. on. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, now Vivek, we want to get to a little bit of the work that you're specifically doing. I know you, you recently uh, submitted for uh, a grant. Uh, tell us, what is it that you're doing in the uh, Department of Tropical, Tropical Medicine that could help against things like uh, the, the Zika virus?
6: So, uh, you, know, uh, in the, you know, in our department, we work on different viruses as well as bacteria uh currently we just submitted a grant proposal proposal uh to the NIH kind of a thing mm-hmm. for uh looking for studying zika virus we have a partnership with uh, with uh, University of Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico has uh, at least till last sunday 21 pregnant women mm-hmm. who were impacted with zika So our goal is to start looking at looking at what's happening in this in this women and follow up this women for uh, for the all all the nine months of pregnancy and then look at the uh, the, then start looking at the baby if the baby is born whether the baby has a microcephaly or not. Mm -hmm. But more than that, here in Hawaii uh, at the John A School of Medicine, uh, we do have an excellent um, UH UH biorepository. Back in 2007, it was started, and we have nearly 9,500. Placenta from women, uh, as well as corresponding their cord blood uh, from the babies uh, and the mother and the mother's blood. So we are trying to use that resource now to start looking for are there any microcephaly in there? Are those babies had any microcephaly? Mm-hmm. If then can we start looking at it? Can we start looking at the at the mothers? Now microcephaly definition of microcephaly has been changing also within the last again mm-hmm. two months or so. Uh, and we are trying to see if we can have the current definition of microcephaly. Do we have more children in there, or more babies which were born back then? Coincidentally, this repository started in two thousand and seven, uh, and we had this going on till twenty thirteen. But the, but the major part of that is is we have uh, the the outbreak in Yap also started in two thousand seven and continue to 2009, so we might have some some cases in there, too.
1: Okay. Excellent.
0: Important work. Yeah. So uh, I guess where can we find more information about uh, what you are are working on?
5: Well, if you want to know about Zika, the one of the best places to go is uh, the CDC website, okay. cdc.gov.
1: Fantastic. Very good. And hawaiibiotech.com? Uh, hibiotech.com. hibiotech.com. H-I
6: well, Elliot and Park... Uh, and for, and, for, and for UH, UH, uh Tropical Medicine, it's manoa.hawaii.edu backslash tropicalmedicine, one word. We'll put that up Fantastic. on the show notes.
0: Elliot Park leads uh, Hawaii Biotech, and Vivek Narukar is the chair of the Department of Tropical Medicine, Medical Microbiology at the John A. Burns School of Medicine. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank, well, thank you. you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. During us next week, when we'll learn about STEM and workforce development. And of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And of course, you can find us on Twitter, I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our
1: engineer is Rob Carlisle and Dave. And uh, you can our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich.
0: And of course, we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.